crank it, Jerry. You're gonna have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you wanna play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hiya, fans of Filmed Entertainment, and thank you for downloading the 126th Long Toss of the sports movie podcast known as Scoring at the Movies. We've been analyzing motion pictures with athletics in them since June 2018. And we always spoil the movies we discuss. I'm the PG-rated retread who, when he wasn't just hitting the same beats he did the first time, changed everything people liked about him in the first place. Ryan Ellis, also Charlie Sheen. And here's the happy-go-lucky long ball hitter who used to believe in Joe Boo, but now he believes in Buddha, Chris Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. You know, Dennis Haysbert is a handsome man, so I'll take that compliment. Although I don't know if you, or most people would know this, but of course... I used to be the bad boy of the podcast that would drive around town in my real tough-looking Hyundai Accent hatchback, you know, <laughs> sipping my decaffeinated green tea. But I had the to, Harley of cars. The Harley of cars. But I had to clean up my act so that I would be more palatable to sponsors. Mm. So I now drive a sensible SUV, and I drink uh, cranberry decaffeinated tea instead of the green tea. So now I, too, can be the spokesperson for Quaker Oats. <laughs> I'm sure you make a great product, but it's just not me. If he's really back to the way he was before, he wouldn't even say anything to those guys. It'd be jam it, largemouth, to them too, not just to Dennis, or sorry, Randy Quaid. One of my favorite things about this movie is the way it starts. If you do the mental math of end of previous season, and I know in real time this was like five years. But they're saying it's the next year. Exactly. So I know they lost in the first round of the playoffs. At most, six months have passed, probably closer to five. And these guys after one season mm-hmm. of moderate success, have all found ways to utterly reinvent themselves. And I like the way you put it. They change everything about themselves that anyone liked in the first place. Mm-hmm. If I may quote Pedro Serrano, who, of course, is Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky, yes. kills a pigeon and gets himself out in the process in the opening game. I think it's supposed to be opening day. You know help me now? I say, blank you, Joe Boo. <laughs> This movie's PG. I was surprised because yeah. we saw it on YouTube. I found this on YouTube. I didn't know it was going to be there. I thought we'd have to pay for it if we were going to cover it at all. But there it was. And then I'm watching for a while. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. The first movie had a lot of swearing in it. Yep. And then somebody said something that was not a swear. And I thought, this has got to be wrong. So I look and it says PG. And also it's a different studio. The other one was Paramount. This is Warner Brothers. I think this was a deliberate attempt by the new studio to say... This movie has a ton of potential to appeal to a younger audience, so we can't have too much swearing or anything because we need to have that PG rating. Okay. And I'll tell you, as much as I love Major League, I was seven or eight years old when that came out. I was too young to see that in the theater. Fair. I have a visceral memory of watching Major League 2 in the theater, and some of the moments in this movie, like the marbles dancing around, holding your arms down underneath your crotch, and the shaking of the marbles at Serrano... Mm-hmm. I remember Randy Quaid saying, you make my butt sting. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of my favorite all-time moments in this movie, the skipper in the hospital losing his mind. And when the nurse comes in, he's watching like the Downton Abbey equivalent in early 90s. PBS. PBS. Or BBC, sorry. I love this stuff. If it was a deliberate attempt, and I think it was, to make it more family-friendly, it certainly worked on me because I was 12. 
yeah, probably 13 by the time this hit the theater. So yeah, 12 or 13 years old, just being there and loving every minute of it. Okay, that's a good point. Well, let me set it up then because you just said your birthday. You weren't quite 13. Major League All Over Again was released by Warner Brothers, as I said, on March 30th, 1994. So this movie is literally 29 years old. Literally. Literally to the day. But yeah, you weren't quite. 13? It opened at number one that weekend. It was brother against brother for a bunch of days there because Emilio Estevez's film, D2, which we covered almost literally one year ago. It was March 31st last year we covered that one. Wow, the stars are aligning in this one, aren't they? D2, the Mighty Ducks. They battled at the box office for a few weeks, but still, Major League Deuce ended up just breaking even at the box office because it didn't really have the legs. I'll keep going here because this may be why it didn't really succeed. I was surprised at this number. This might be the worst thing I've ever told you about Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm surprised because this isn't a good movie, but it was fun. Sure. Five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. One, two, three, four, five. Critic score? Critic score. Three point three to ten is the average. Twenty one reviews. Five percent. And forty five percent forty five percent of audiences. That's unfair. We've definitely talked about how critics, and I think this was especially true in this era of movie criticdom, were really hell bent on making sure that they held up their movie auteur. I'm a film critic. Exactly. And so I think if anybody just took a step back and asked themselves, who is this movie trying to appeal to? Especially... It was you. It was me. Exactly. And if you look at it relative to Major League, Major League was clearly intended for an adult baseball fan, right? And that can still be true of the sequel. I agree with you. I think it's a fun watch. Not a good movie, objectively, but a fun watch. But a lot of what makes it not a good movie are some of the additions that were put in clearly for the younger audience. Yeah. If you're a critic, I think it's fair to call that out, but I don't think it's fair to give this a 5% score on that basis, because it's certainly worth more than that. It's worth more than that just for the baseball in the movie alone, Mm -hmm. which I think has got to be the best stuff in the movie, is when you're on the field with the team. That was true of the first movie, too. The baseball is quite good. Charlie Sheen is a believable pitcher. He was the first time he is again. Yeah, well, he roided up for the first movie to get his fastball up to whatever Mm -hmm. it was, 85 or something in real life. I don't think he did it for the second go-around, but yeah, he knows how to pitch. I don't know if this was true when they casted the second movie because the studio was different, so presumably all of the staff behind the scenes was different too. But I do know that when they were casting the first, they tested people. They made them throw a ball around as part of the casting process just to see, do you have athleticism naturally to make it look like you can really throw a ball, Mm -hmm. right? We've talked about people in movies that just look like they have no coordination. So whether or not you buy them as an athlete can often depend on whether or not you just have the natural athleticism in your movement, and then that can be refined a little bit leading up to shooting. And in the first movie, they also took him to a boot camp for like four or six weeks. Baseball boot camp. Baseball boot camp, yeah. There's a lot of carryover cast to the new movie. You lose Wesley Snipes, you replace him with Omar Epps. You add the Tanaka character and stuff like that, and the Parkman character, of course. And Eric Bruscotter, the catcher. I can't forget Rube. He's one of the (laughs) better additions to this movie. So you get all these new guys, but a lot of carryover from the old movies. So that just means you have a lot of people as actors that already know how to perform baseball movements in a believable way. I think all of them do. Yeah. Including Berenger in the first one and a tiny bit of this one. Exactly. And I think Omar Epps doesn't know how to swing a bat on the balls of his feet. He always looks like hyper flat footed. Okay. But in general, yes, I agree. And that's why I love the baseball action in this movie and in Major League is because it's not relegated to hyper tight shots of players. You get camera angles behind the pitcher of somebody pitching the ball, the actors hitting the ball, 
and it's all one shot. You can see all of it happening. So yeah, of course, the pitcher's probably lobbing the ball in at like 40 miles an hour or something, but it looks believable. There are a lot of actors who couldn't hit 45 miles an hour pitches though either. That's exactly right. It just adds so much to the action and the authenticity of the baseball games itself. It makes me feel badly for some of the other baseball movies we've watched where all you do get are those really sad, tight shots of somebody swinging a bat from the waist up only. You don't see any ball. Wesley Snipes in the fan. Yeah. He doesn't really... Well, he hits, I guess, in Major League the first time because he hits infield balls. We never see him really hit anything other than a dribbler, which is the point of his character. Get on base and then run! Yeah. But then in the fan, when he's supposed to be a Barry Bonds equivalent... He's the worst swing you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> exactly. And apparently he was a terrible basketball player too, but you'd never know that in White Man Can't Jump. He seems like a great basketball player. You're drinking tea over there? I am drinking tea over here. And I've got water beside me. Very clean living again. Well, I talked about Rotten Tomatoes. How about this though? Yep. The original, which we covered, one of the first few podcasts we did, 83%, which I was surprised about. I thought it'd be 75 or 70 or something like that. I love the movie too. It's actually one of those I like more and more as time goes on. Still one of my very favorite sequences ever is when he comes up to Wild Thing at the end of that film. And it's reprised here quite well. I started the podcast by saying, Cranky Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, it's him, Cranky Jerry. It's the exact same thing all over again, but it's still really cool. But Rotten Tomatoes, the third one, which I have not seen. I thought maybe I had, but I haven't. Back to the Miners has 21%. Four times what this one does. Yeah. Most of the cast is not back in that one. That's still not a good review, but it's still better than this one. Nobody's arguing that this movie is anywhere near as good as the original, because I agree with you. There's so much to like about that original. And in this movie, it feels from the get-go pretty much like a studio executive saying, how do we get another major league movie where we get all the same people on the field without it being too crazy, right? You got to have Rick Vaughn have the most boring love triangle in history. Now, that said, his girlfriend... Those two women, both of them. Both of them, but I have to look up her name. Allison Duty. And she's in The Last Crusade. Right. She's Elsa. Oh, man. She is a she was stunning woman. RRR as well. Was she so really? Rise, Roll, Revolt that won the Best Song Oscar at the Oscars recently. But Allison Duty, who is at 12 in this movie. Absolutely. And she, Michelle Burke as the girlfriend is not that far behind her. Not at 12. Okay, fine. No, but she's also a, pretty cute. She's a beautiful woman in and of herself. But we talk about the scoring factor and stuff like that, of course. But she was the kind of beautiful in this movie that I had to take a step back and go, wow, who is this person? People do paintings of this type of person. Yeah. She's been working this whole time. Like you said, she was just an RRR. She's had some notable roles like Elsa in The Last Crusade, but not the career mm -hmm. that I would expect from somebody who just has this level of physical beauty because it's Hollywood and you just kind of expect, well, this person is stunningly beautiful. Let's put her in front of a camera because that's just the way Hollywood works. And acting talent-wise, I think she was pretty good in The Last Crusade. And she was perfectly good in this too for what they asked her to do. She was basically just asked to be a corporate stooge, but my rambling about how pretty she is aside... You get the same cast back again. You give Wild Thing a boring love triangle. I do like the concept. As much as it makes me laugh to think of how much he and how much the Willie Mays Hayes character and Serrano and all those guys change, I like the going corporate angle of it, right? Because it feels like the kind of thing we've seen, if not after the first season that they're successful, at least a lot of players on a lot of sports will do this, right? To either make themselves more marketable, make their careers a little bit longer, more sustainable. Cash in as well. That as do movie sequels a lot of the time. Uh, yeah, big time. But then selling the team, buying the team back. felt Margaret Witten does not need to be in this movie. Doesn't need to be in it, right? Feels totally needless. When she comes in at the end and demotivates them when they're up 3-0 in the playoffs, how fragile are their egos? So that fragile. affects them. 
oh yeah, you were terrible last year, and so were you, and so were you, and the playoffs against the exact same team. Yeah. They're doing well this year. I don't think baseball players are that tender and sensitive that they're going to fall apart because somebody <laughs> reminds them they're bad. Well, okay, maybe. We have talked about but this before. all of them, though, come on. They're doing no. great. They're up 3-0 against what is supposed to be a better team. That was a little overwrought. Okay, maybe you get a little bit shaken, you lose a game. Fine, but to play it like she has just shattered their confidence mm-hmm. after they went on an amazing run again to get to the playoffs feels like that's unlikely. The whole Dorn buying the team back again kind of stuff or buying the team selling it, that didn't need to happen. For about a half season. I get that you need to have a reason why somebody would bring in Parkman. This previous owner hated the team, so she would never pay money to make the team better. So she's going to sell the team to Dorn or whatever. But I'm sure you could either find a reason for her to bring Parkman in maybe because she knows he's a cancer in the clubhouse, or you just don't have him on the team at all. You just have him as a member of the White Sox from the get-go, and you get a lot of rivalry through the movie of him slagging the Cleveland players. Which he does anyway. Which he does anyway, right? Yeah. Bob Euchre has some fun lines about Parkman in this. Euchre was amazing in this movie. Mm. I love He might have been better than he was in the first piece. I agree. Partly because when the team starts doing well, you see him drinking water again. Yeah. Well, when it starts, he's drinking water. Then he drinks booze as they're not doing well. <laughs> yeah. He's back to water. And also booze. <laughs> that is one of my favorite uncommented on elements of this movie. And not just what he drinks, but his attire. He goes from button-down shirt yeah. and bottle of Evian in the beginning to, at their worst, just in a white, a white undershirt passed out, surrounded by beer bottles. It's probably in 2023 the kind of thing that people would get mad at in terms of making fun of alcoholism and stuff. But if you zoom out... And it, it was funny, though. It was very funny. And Bob Euchre just plays it beautifully. And some of his lines about Parkman in particular were really well delivered. When he, when Parkman does the shimmy, the women love that here in Cleveland <laughs> during the playoffs. Oh, the women are sick, or they get sick when he does yeah, that. Like the that. women in Cleveland get the sick. The two great lines from the broadcasters, because Monty is the other guy. That's right. I love when Euchre says about Monty saying something innocuous and nothing. It's almost like saying, oh, that grass is green. Dynamite drop in, Monty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was great. That was great. And I think I quoted this when we covered the first major league many years ago. When Euchre passes out, somebody hits a screaming line yeah. drive. Fly ball. This is Monty now. Incredible diving catch. Caught. <laughs> <laughs> that sequence is one of the better ones in the movie, too. Because when Euchre passes out, the look of panic on Monty's face mm-hmm. first. And then that incredible play that you just described. Just brilliantly played. So. Yeah. If somebody says this is a 5% movie on Rotten Tomatoes... Did they not laugh at all? Because I guess we did. I didn't laugh as much as I wish I had, but I laughed. I think that's a fair way to describe this movie, absolutely. What is the movie trying to do? It's just trying to be a silly movie that's going to appeal to a pretty broad swath of a family audience. That's whether or not you're a child or necessarily a sports fan. Do you think maybe this is going up against the notion that at this point we've now had so many great baseball movies, and maybe the critics... I didn't read any reviews, including Roger Ebert, but maybe they said... Yeah, but you're coming after The Natural 10 years ago, Bull Durham in 88, Field of Dreams in 89, the first Major League in 89. Maybe that's what it was. They were comparing it to those other baseball movies. It could be. Which is also not fair because you should always review, maybe not us, but people that do this for a living, review the movie on its own merits. Yeah. And frankly, I think that's what we try to do. We just try to take... Well, we reference other movies an awful lot. I would never base a score or a review of a movie on its relative performance against other movies. I haven't. I've admitted it when I have. (laughs) It's hard not to when you know films the way I think I know films, and you've seen a lot of them, especially when it comes to series or sequels. This is part of three movies, the middle sequel. Well, I think it's fair to use your knowledge as a contextual reference point for what forms a good movie versus what forms a less good or bad movie, for sure. I think that's absolutely fair. I'm not saying you should pretend you know nothing about nothing, right? But we've already talked about at least 
three or four moments in this movie that brought smiles to our faces, made us laugh. And that alone on its face is enough to say that this movie is at least watchable. How many comedies have we watched over the course of this podcast where we haven't laughed once? Rookie of the Year, I always like to point to that. That movie knew nothing about baseball. Yes. It was terrible sports action. Yes. I know it's a fantasy because he has the broken arm and everything like that. It's not even so much that the kid plays baseball and has this fastball and the weird noise when his arm throws the ball because <laughs> arms throw balls. It's just terrible. It doesn't know anything about sports. It makes John Candy even look bad as the broadcaster in the yes. booth. This movie doesn't do that, I don't think. Well, when it comes to movies that year, this was 45th at the box office. We covered Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, with some of its football, little football. Laces that was out. 16th. Laces out. Angels in the Outfield was 26th. And D2, Estevez's movie, was better. It finished 30th. So I guess it had better legs than this did. This was nominated for two Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, and it won for Worst Sequel. Okay, I don't know what sequels came out in 94, but I didn't think I'd be coming to this trying to defend it to the utmost, because I also feel like it's a mediocre movie. But I'm also surprised by the box office lack of success, because this is a movie I saw in the theater, and this is a movie I remember talking about with my friends when it came out. And we just had a lot of fun referencing silly moments of it. This movie... Maybe it doesn't have longevity necessarily, but I would have expected it to have more box office success, at least in its opening weeks. Yeah. Amongst that 12, 13, 14-year-old baseball fan, young kid kind of group, if nothing else. Well, back then, movies played longer, even if they weren't that successful. So this probably didn't last that long. Like it maybe it should have into the summer. You hope it can do that. But it did come out at the end of March. So I don't think it was gone or playing, I should say, that much longer into, say, probably May. I didn't look it up, but it must not have been playing into June. When school gets out and kids can go see it even more. My gut feeling about this might have been, if not for the fact that you already said it came out, what, March 30th or something of this year, Mm -hmm. or of 94, rather. Well, did it get negatively impacted by the baseball strike, right? Because, of course, the baseball strike happened in 94. That was August. Does this movie stack up to my remembrance of it as a kid? So do you think it did? In a lot of respects, yes. There's moments in this movie that are so viscerally embedded in my memories. You have no marbles kind of thing didn't make me laugh anymore, but that absolutely would have killed 12-year-old Chris. But the things that amuse me more than anything else as an adult have changed, but they're still there, right? And I talked about the manager loving the Downton Abbey stuff, or pretending to because he's listening to the game illicitly on wireless. Because he had a heart attack! Yeah. Who's complaining about having a heart attack? I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Toppling over in the clubhouse. But the one that hit the hardest for me, you talked about... Berenger's character not having a lot of baseball action in this movie, Jake Taylor. The moment when he's trying to beat out the ball to first and Parkman's in the dugout using a bat as a cane and saying, oh, it must be hard to get old. And I'm like, hold on. Jake Taylor later in the movie says, nobody wants a 41-year-old catcher. I'm 41. I've had my share of knee problems. Damn, man. Parkman, that cuts deep. What are you talking about? (laughs) Carlton Fisk, I think, was playing around this time and he was in his 40s and still a pretty good player. But so, most catchers don't get to be 41 and still oh, playing at no. any kind of good level. Well, the catcher then ends up being the main player on the team, or the main catcher on the team anyway, because when they start the season, there's three of them. But it is Rube, that's Eric Brascotter, who's also a catcher in the fan. I think I pointed that out when we covered that podcast, that I heard a voice and thought, I know that voice from somewhere. I looked him up, and it's the same guy. Okay. He didn't really have that much of a career. He was in the sequel, meaning the third movie, as was Tanaka, as was, I think... Haysbert, Dennis Haysbert as Serrano. But I don't believe Sheen and Berenger were in that. I don't think that Lou Brown, who was he? James Gammon, I don't think he was in that. But they did have some of the characters back for the third film. And Rube is not funny. They're trying to make him one of the key comedy characters. But apparently he's based on Mackie Sasser. 
Do you remember that name, Mackie Sasser? Not at all. Mets catcher. I remember this very well because I was just getting into baseball in a big way in the late 80s. It was probably 89, 90, somewhere in there where the Mets were always in the hunt for the playoffs. Really good team. The strawberry Gooden years. Terrible. <laughs> Mackie Sasser could not throw the ball back to the pitcher. He would triple pump. He was fine throwing to the bases, but he really? couldn't throw to the pitcher. So it's based on that. And then the flip side, of course, is that they've got this superstar catcher in Parkman. David Keith, he is very believable as a baseball player. Oh, very much so, yeah. I would say that for the most part that Rube, who's not supposed to be a good hitter, although in the last half of the film you see baseball action, the montages, of course, there are a lot of montages. It seems like he's almost always in the thick of it, meaning Rube. Yes. He may not have any power. He has a home run. And, oh, my God, I had a home run. So maybe he had two home runs all year. But he seems to always get hits or be on base in one way or another. And he has what ends up being the TSN turning point, as we would say in Canada, or the ESPN turning point in the States. When he gets hit by a pitch and can't play the first half of a doubleheader, that's when the big brawl happens. And by the way, somebody punched the manager because Jake has a welt on his lip. Yeah. Who punches the man? It could be accidental, but who punches the manager and expects to keep on playing on the team? Uh-huh. Anyway, it's Rube that says to Jake in the break between the two games of the doubleheader, I'll be ready to play because everyone else has just given up, especially Willie. Uh, what's the point of any of this anymore? Yeah. These guys have been given up pretty fast. It's I don't know, June, maybe July. The season's not even we're near over. If, Obviously not that far out of it. If that. Right. And so Rube's the one who's going to play when he shouldn't be walking on this ankle anymore. And then they all coalesce. Willie Mays Hayes steals three bases. Pedro finally hits a big home run because Tanaka goads him. But he is the key character in the whole film. And I wouldn't say Bruce Goddard's a great actor or this performance is incredible. But they've made him be the key guy. And maybe yeah. that's the problem for critics, too, is that he's likable enough, but he's not that funny. Including when he says to Rick at the end. The going get tough, the tough get going. That's what's supposed to be, right? When the tough get going, the going get tough. And then he goes back to his yeah, position. So he, he reversed even, it. Yeah. yeah, he screwed that up too. But he's based on a real guy in Mackie Sasser. I don't think that Parkman's based on anybody in reality. But David Keith, who's done a lot of things in his career. I covered him last year in a solo podcast, my other podcast, Have You Ever Seen? It was Top Runner Project back then. In An Officer and a Gentleman. He is Richard Gere's buddy. And he's done a lot of things in his life. He's in Firestarter. He's Drew Barrymore's father. I couldn't find any other sports movies, and yet he is badass and cool-looking in this. And he is a great villain, including wiping out Rube towards the end. And then the payback for that is when Willie dives over him. Sucka! In the playoff game. The Rube thing, you might be right as far as what people, or at least the critics, didn't like about this movie. But I feel like that's a little bit of an unfair hack at it. I don't remember finding him funny as a kid. Didn't find him particularly funny now. Did you like him, though? Because I liked yes, him. Yes, I did like him. Yeah. And I thought he was a heartfelt character, and the portrayal came through that way. Because it's really hard to have a good locker room speech. doesn't matter if it's a coach, a player, whatever, and it doesn't matter what the sport is either. It's certainly been done before. Yeah, it's been done badly by a lot of movies before. And, well, there's good examples, too. But this... With six inches in front of your face! Kind of love Pacino just giving it his all in anything, right? But... As far as feeling it in your gut a little bit when somebody says something, because he doesn't give it the full Pacino treatment or anything. He says it in a really measured way in this movie. Let's not undersell the fact that they set this up by not only having a hit by pitch, but hit by a pitch in the ankle. And mm. then the doctor says, you got to stay off it for a few days. And then Willie Mays Hayes says, oh, you're lucky you don't have to play the second game because they're all being big socks, like mm. you said at this An point. An hour later, this guy's saying, I'll play again. Yeah, exactly. So when he says, not only I'll play again, but nobody thought I was going to amount to anything... You're either going to be a baseball player or, and then he couldn't think of another thing that his dad thought you know, he could make it as. So it's this for me or nothing else. And I love it. And I bet you all loved it at one point too. 
wasn't overwrought, wasn't overdone, I thought was really effective. And the previous year, nobody believed in any of these guys. They go from nobodies to we're all going to change all of our personalities in the offseason. Now we all think we're superstars, mm-hmm. and now we don't believe in ourselves again. It all happened very fast for them. Well, let me do the nutshell then, because it plays into all this. Yeah. So, Major League Two in a nutshell. This is about Rick, of course, towards the end of the film, when he's been throwing junk all year long and can't throw the fastball anymore. His arm is dead, just like Parkman says at the end. New look, same dead arm. So in a nutshell, guilt trips delivered by manager and girlfriend convinced professional baseball player to add 16 miles per hour to his fastball overnight. Yeah. Everything in this movie that I struggled with, and primarily that was the love triangle, and I've had that gripe about sports movies before, trying to shoehorn in some sort of overwrought romance just for reasons, I but guess. But that then, but also that he sucks the whole year. Yeah, well, that's supposed to be their best pitcher. Nobody even mentions Chelsea Ross's character in the previous movie. Eddie, yeah. he's just gone. He was their best pitcher the previous year. He was. I guess they couldn't get the actor back or something. But when he comes out, uh, Rick Vaughn, Wild Thing, comes out and says, listen, I'm not throwing the fastball in the spring training. I'm throwing these junk ball pitches that I've come up with because I want to preserve my arm. I don't know if not throwing a fastball preserves your arm. Sliders can do worse damage than yeah. anything else. So like, can fork balls. The grip and the way you have to twist your arm and stuff like that, I understood to be harder on it. But anyway, okay, you want to say that as your motivation, I'll buy it. Just have it be a thing where he doesn't want to throw the fastball. It's like a mental block. Or when he tries to throw it, he throws it wildly like he did in the first movie, right? right? Wild thing in the first movie had this whole thing where he couldn't throw a pitch straight to save his life. It's, oh, you can't see. Yeah. Where are these glasses? He doesn't wear the glasses, as far as I could tell, the whole sure. movie. And he say anything about getting, well, was LASIK even a thing in 1994? No, well, he puts them on at the end with the skulls in the middle, and that's why I Because we have to have yet another callback to the yeah. previous movie. But of course, you wear your glasses with the skulls in the middle whenever we record the podcast. <laughs> I, I assume just to intimidate me. Well, as we found out, though, I didn't wear glasses last year. And I had one of my better years in my entire life because I think they're throwing me off. I need yeah. to get better glasses anyway in the first place. I'm not wearing them right now anymore because my glasses suck. <laughs> I should be wearing them, but they aren't very good, so... I find it easier not to wear them. In the second half of this podcast, you're going to start hearing the Wild Thing music mm-hmm. playing, and then you're going to come back in with the glasses on. Thank you, Chrissy. <laughs> <laughs> I do exactly. love that moment, by the way. Both movies, the first one's better. This one's not that far off, especially because... The walkout is great. Randy Quaid, who's been Mr. Superfan. I haven't seen the whole movie in a long time, so I forgot that he's Superfan. He's the biggest mm-hmm. believer in the world for the longest time. Then when he gives up, just like Euchre, actually, Harry Doyle, gave up so hard. Yeah. Right when they could clinch the playoff spot, and then somebody hits a screaming line drive to left field, and Doyle's, oh, we just lost this game. Oh, well, it's over. Tanaka climbs the fence, stands on the wall, which you can't do, apparently, by the way. Yeah, the ball because they're a home run. But he catches it, and they make the playoffs after all with that play. But Harry goes from, we could clinch it. Oh, it's over. Dude, oh, we did it. Yeah. Maybe in some ways the movie's insightful about fandom. I think because so. Because forget just him as the broadcaster. They can be super fans, but... Randy Quaid's character, such a super fan who loves the team so much, but then gives up so hard until he gets one dog from the bullpen when Charlie Sheen says, jam it, Lardmouth. Oh my God, he's back! Yeah. The Rockford, whatever, the re... <laughs> anyway, the fact, bring the cheese. I can't think of all the expressions. We haven't seen, and he hasn't seen, the Vaughn is the fastball back. Yeah. But just because of that one thing, he's now, again, an incredible super fan. So it's both dumb and annoying, and Randy Quaid, of course, in many of his roles, has been dumb and annoying, although we liked him in Kingpin. We covered that many years ago. But that also might be a comment by, I didn't even say his name yet, but David Ward, who wrote and directed the first movie and directed this one. He didn't write this one. Okay. character credit. Maybe that's supposed to be a comment on fandom, which is really true now, but maybe it was then, too. These people that 100%. just go from, my team's the greatest, to they're down by two runs with, I don't know, three innings to go. We're never going to win a game again. 
I think you're absolutely right. And you know what? I think you just talked me around a little bit what I was trying to get at with what you referenced with Rick Vaughn losing 16 miles an hour on his fastball because attitude or something. Mm. At first, I was about to say, well, why don't you just have him be hesitant to throw it because he can't throw it straight or something like that because he wasn't wearing glasses the whole season. Mm. But I think you lose that moment in the bullpen when he comes out with the old haircut back and everybody going wild. And then he's able to throw 99-102 in the final at bat to Parkman to strike him out. Maybe that does work better than I was about to give it credit for. It's overstated to go from 85-86 to 102, obviously. Because he's worked up and mad. He's worked up and mad. His manager and his girlfriend said, you're a dumbass. Fine then. (laughs) Anger is a great motivator. And we know mindset and psychology of sports inhibit somebody's performance. If your mindset's not there. 16 miles per hour. No, it's it's a little (laughs) bit silly. But I'm talking myself around to liking that moment and the way they played the Rick Vaughn arc a little bit. But just in terms of the fandom stuff, it's a comment on fandom. When I was growing up, my father introduced me to baseball. He was a big Blue Jays, still is a big Blue Jays fan. But of course, this is just after. But Two right, straight World Series championships. Yeah, so peak Jays, right? And every summer, we would listen to baseball games on the radio. And my father's the biggest fan, loving it. But the Jays lose one game, or they lose one lead and then lose the game. It's like, oh, they're the blow Jays. They're the worst. They suck. I can't listen to this anymore. And then they go in and win the World Series, right? And they're like, oh, okay, there you go, Dad. And then the next year, it happens again, right? We're in July. They lose a game. He's ragging on them. He can't believe how bad they are. And then they win the World Series. I think there's a lot of fandom, maybe more so now because internet, but there's a lot of fandom, even back in the 90s, that would whipsaw back and forth, almost game to game, in terms of love him deeply or hate him Or deeply. pitch to pitch, maybe. I love Randy Quaid. Anytime he's got a role with manic energy, Cousin Eddie, right, is the classic example of this. But in Major League, it's the same thing. I love him as the super fan. I love him even more as the utter down in the dumps, hate everything about this team. Why are you showing up to this party? (laughs) Every game, You're so unhappy the whole time (laughs) with a rally cap on. Yeah. So he has some belief while being so upset. That's the beauty of it, right? Because you're just asking yourself, why did you spend the money for the season tickets and come up every game? The problem is he had to travel to Baltimore to do it. They shot, if not all the baseball scenes, most of them in Baltimore using Memorial Stadium, which the Orioles were leaving. And then Camden Yards, they were just going into that. So I think they were home for the Camden Yards games. That's where they're supposed to be, the home games. But then the road games are the old place. Oh, okay. So he's got to go that. That may be the problem. <laughs> we're not home ever. One no of, one knew that. I'm just making that up. One of the silliest. I'm not making it up. They shot in Baltimore. They did shoot the games in Baltimore. Yeah, I think they shot the games in the original Milwaukee, right? Like yes, n- that's None right. of it was ever shot in Cleveland. And neither is maybe the third movie, but not the first two. As much as I do think the writers of this movie love baseball and its comments on fandom, comments on the game itself, and I give them a lot of credit for understanding the game, there's one or two things that I would say they got weirdly wrong. And then there's just like a straight up continuity goof. In the sequence of the... I'm trying not to use the team name, but of Cleveland. I don't know what to call it anymore. Obviously, the, the well, Guardians. They were the now. Indians. So. They were, but anyway, the Cleveland team. They're in the midst of their successful streak. Redacted. Yeah, the Redacted. <laughs> we called them that in the other Major League podcast. It which makes sense. We're in that montage sequence where we're seeing the team win games, and then it cuts to the black and white newspaper print of it. And then, so you got a game against the Jays that they win, and then you got a game against the Orioles. After the Orioles game, you get the shot of Willie spooking the Orioles' second baseman as he's running by, who's about to catch the pop-up. Right. And as a result, the player drops it. And then the headline is, something spooks the Willies out of the Jays or something. Mm. Come on, guys. That was clearly the Orioles. What's wrong with you? Dear sir. And then I started writing the... But that really happened, though. Alex Rodriguez did that to a Blue Jays player. I don't Some know, years late later. Late 2000s. Yeah, it was a long time later, but he did the same thing. He did. 
in terms of things that this movie predicted, the dive that Willie Mays Hayes pulled to score the run over Parkman. Okay. 2017, Chris Coughlin of the Jays did exactly the same I thing that. Okay. in a game against St. Louis. I think it was Yadier Molina. must have been the catcher then. It looks shot for shot identical. A straight dive headfirst over the catcher, touching the base and then barrel rolling over home. Hmm. Incredible play. You talk about reality though, so I've got some notes about that. Cleveland and Chicago, the two big rivals in this movie, and yep. the White Sox beat them in the playoffs the previous year. Because at this point, it was still American League East, American League West. Same right. with the National League, of course. And then you go to the World Series. You play one playoff series, then you're in the World Series, unlike all the wild card rounds and divisional rounds now. So Cleveland, in reality, in 1994, when this movie came out, had their first winning season since 1986. Then they went on a run where they were first in the Central because, of course, 1994 was the first year of the American League East, West, and Central. Same with the National League. They were first six out of seven years. So these are the Bayerga, Lofton, Albert Bell, Sandy Alomar years. The White Sox, who are the bad guys in this movie and had beaten them the year before, and I think won the World Series, so they would have lost in the first round of the playoffs or the American League Championship Series the next year to Cleveland. So they're the bad guys, but they had languished before this too. Both teams had been bad for a long time in reality. The Jays had been good, of course, and so had Oakland had been so good for most of the last, say, mid-80s to early 90s. But the White Sox weren't very good and wouldn't be again after this because around this time, yes, they had been good. They were bad in the 80s. Then they get Frank Thomas, Robin Ventura, make the playoffs in 93. So for four or five years, they were pretty good. But around the mid-90s, so a year or two after the movie came out, then they were terrible again. Then they got good again. Then they were, they've been really streaky. They won the World Series in 05. And 94 was the year Major League Baseball created the three divisions. So these two teams would be in the same division this exact same year in reality, yeah. despite playing each other in the playoffs two years in a row in this fictional universe. Of course, they picked the Cleveland Indians as the target team for the first movie because of how bad they were in the 80s and how utterly hopeless they seemed. Well, David Ward said that this is the one way I could get them to be in the playoffs. I can make it fictional. And he was a Cleveland fan, of course, mm-hmm. right? So... Interesting that you choose a guy like Parkman to play on the Oakland A's before he signs with Cleveland in this movie. Because they were dominant. Because they were dominant. I know he's a catcher in this movie, but I wonder if they were playing on the Jose Canseco, okay. Mark McGuire, Bash Brother motif. Because as soon as he signs with the team, you get Randy Quaid saying, 42 home runs guaranteed this year, which in the 90s was a lot of home runs because yeah. this is still pre. McGuire, Sosa, pre-Bonds, all that kind of stuff. But not for Conseco and McGuire in the early 90s. Exactly. They hit 35 to 40 every year. I don't think the actor is actually that big a dude, but the way that it... He looks like he's huge, though. He looks like he's huge, right? So he looks very much like a Bash brother from Oakland in this era. Says he's 5'11". He looks bigger, he looks bulkier, and he looks meaner, obviously, which I think is a credit to the film that they make him look that intimidating yeah. as a villainous Just character. shoot from below. I guess. Give him more stature. The Deke. That's his nickname. The Deke. The Deke. DK, I guess. That's probably why. Sure. You come into this saying, well, you got to up the ante somehow. And obviously, Cleveland lost in the first round. In the first movie, we'll just have them win that, go to the World Series. I know that they set up the conflict with the White Sox and the conflict between Wild Thing and Parkman in particular. And once you have those two things conquered, maybe the World Series doesn't matter. But it felt like not quite enough success for a sequel to build on the first one. Okay, yeah. Well, hang on. I'm looking at this sure. here. So they shot from August to December. I'm sure that's reshoots. They probably didn't shoot the whole time that many months. But August, September, and then into October, the real-life White Sox were in the playoffs against the Blue Jays, and our team ended up repeating winning the second World Series. That's but right. I don't remember who was the favorite, but the White Sox couldn't have been the underdog by much because they had Frank Thomas, who was incredible, Robin Matura, who was really good, Jack McDowell, 
So there's no reason to think the White Sox couldn't have beaten the Blue Jays and gotten the World Series themselves that year. That's and true. that's probably why they're set up as the big bad. It's an interesting coincidence of timing that that's what was happening in real life when this movie was filming because they wanted to set up that rematch against the White Sox. They would have probably picked that team regardless. I think it adds a little bit more juice to it when you know that the White Sox are really good. What I found interesting was when they were about to potentially win the series, Randy Quaid still sulking Mm. and his friends go, we're going to the World Series. And Randy Quaid goes, so what? In Chicago? Does that imply that the Cubs have already made it through to the World Series? No, he still thinks the White Sox are going to upset Cleveland and win this series. Oh, is that it? He has no faith even when they're about to win. Well, before they blow the 3-0 lead. Almost blow it because they do win the series. But it goes 3-3, obviously, and then they still end up winning. He thinks they're going to blow it. He's almost right. But when they're up 3-0, dude, have a little bit of faith. Oh, I see. I read it completely differently because, of course, when the fans say we are going to the World Series, it implies that you're meeting your team, right? You don't mean... No, he means the White Sox are still going to win. Yeah, I know. In the moment, I'm thinking, did the Cleveland guys just rob Chicago of having a Cubs versus White Sox World Series? And he wasn't right, too, because Parkman hits a go-ahead home run, but then Pedro Serrano hits them. They both hit three-run homers, or at least Parkman's gives them a lead. Maybe it's not... I think it's a three-run shot. Pedro's is a three-run shot, and then they have enough of a lead for a while to come out. Walking back to pitch to Parkman is terrible managing. I yeah. get that Lou in the first movie and now Jake in this movie goes by his instincts sometimes, especially when it comes to Vaughn because they know he's a different beast. Vaughn has the look in his eyes. He's got the eye of the tiger. You haven't seen him throw 100 miles an hour like he had done the previous year, but even if he was throwing 100 miles an hour, you're pitching to the best player on their team who had been the best hitter on your team. Beck is an okay hitter at best. And also it's second and third. You walk him to pitch to a better hitter. A simple yeah. single gives him the lead, let alone if it's a grand slam home run. That is terrible managing. Yeah. And terrible decisions by Vaughn, despite wanting his balls back too, just like Serrano did. I get the story arc there, but that's just dumb. As baseball fans, we can't let that slide. You say it's bad managing. I say it's bad writing. And Bob Uecker's character in this movie has another good moment where he's like, yeah. well, he's walking back to get to Parkman. I guess Taylor's he- thinking, I don't, I don't know what the hell he's thinking. Yeah, <laughs> Which is true, right? Because it makes yeah. no sense. I don't understand why the movie didn't do this. Rather than have Vaughn come in at that point, just have the pitcher previously just have nothing left in his arm. He walks back. You've got the bases, or he doesn't walk back. Second and third. Two I'll out. get this weak hitter out, but then doesn't. No. You don't have Beck coming up. You have Parkman coming up. And then you got Jake Taylor saying, give me Vaughn, right? And everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you bringing in Vaughn? I got a feeling. And then he says, okay, I want you to pitch I around. I got a hunch he's due. No, pitch around this guy, right? And Vaughn says, no, nah, I want him. Pitch around him. I want him. Because at least that makes a little bit more sense to yeah, me. Yeah, you're right. It does, actually. Then I'm going to intentionally walk somebody else to get to this guy. I want to challenge him versus I want to pitch around him is a little bit more sensible to me. For a movie that knows baseball and loves the game, there's two things that make no sense. One you just talked about is that whole sequence with Vaughn and Taylor and that decision-making. That's a little bit too far-fetched. The other thing is we're talking about Game 7 of a playoff series here. The Cleveland starting pitcher has gone the length thus far. Mm, for some reason. For some reason. Even though he's given up five runs and he goes, you pitched a hell of a game. You fought him everywhere. I'm like, hey, kind of a mediocre game. You give him mm. five runs in the playoffs, but okay, whatever. Randy Quaid's character's going, the cupboard's bare, Taylor. You got nobody here except Rick Vaughn. That's why the starter went, though, as long as he did. I know. 
but it is impossible that any playoff team is going to go into a Game 7 with one arm in their bullpen. Well, true, because everyone always says that everybody's healthy in Game 7. Yes, exactly. And the players feel that way. That's not just the manager having to say, you're going to pitch, I can't, Daddy. No, every one of them, if they're a professional athlete, is saying, I don't care if I can't stand, I'm playing today if you need me. Yeah, exactly. And this is not something that's unfixable. I think you correct it by just getting rid of the whole Vaughn's the only guy in the bullpen thing, and instead it's Taylor making the call to go to Vaughn specifically. Well, why would he do that? Vaughn has sucked all year. Well, Taylor had that whole moment when he went to visit Vaughn at his condo. and that, For this purpose. For this purpose, right? Yeah. So it's like, well, I got a feeling. I talked to him. I know he's going to have to fire back and all that. And then he's it, due. Yeah, because up until that point, I know you got Taylor giving the crappy do-it-for-the-gipper-type speech in the locker room, which I think... That was like, almost funny. Because Lewitt said, don't do that, then he does it. But I think the key there is almost, Mm -hmm. almost funny. Because I think you already had the locker room speech when Rube gave it, and he did it better. So you don't really have, for me anyway, a lot of Jake Taylor showing himself to be a great manager in this movie. And I think that would have been an opportunity to show the old school manager that goes with his gut in the right moment at the right time. He could have picked Vaughn to pitch in a full bullpen situation and have Vaughn be successful. And that would have, I think, redeemed both of them simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Versus what else are you going to do? Exactly. A few hiccupy, lazy moments in what was otherwise, I thought, a well-written baseball movie, if a badly written everything else movie. I thought it was a well-written baseball movie, but it was Not, better than the critics thought it was. The baseball sequences specifically. Oh, I yeah, thought generally they, speaking, yeah. they were pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's some pretty good cameos in this, by the way, because Rene Russo is back. I forgot. I didn't think she was in it. <laughs> for like 30 seconds. It's only for a few seconds, <laughs> yeah. but you talk about the score factor. Rene Russo is still, because of course, a year or two after this, well, let's see. It was a year later she's in Get Shorty as Travolta's love interest, then the year after that with Costner in Tin Cup, which we covered way back when. And then Jesse Ventura has like a little cameo. Yeah, he was in The Running Man. We did The Running Man many years ago. He's got a role in that. So there's a lot of actors in this film. And then Michelle Burke, by the way, didn't do a lot of films. She's Nikki. So it's Ricky and Nikki. Oh, okay. But she was in Dazed and Confused before this. You might have thought, yeah. okay, well, she's building something and then didn't really... That yeah, that's where I know her from, Dazed okay. and Confused. Margaret Witten, who plays Rachel, the former and then again current owner. This was her last year of acting. I don't know if this was her very last film, but she made a few in 1994 and this was the last year she acted. Really? In the first movie we talked about it, how huh. the outtakes, the original point was going to be, I was just being a jerk to motivate you guys, which does not track at all. But then also in that movie when at the end... When they do play Wild Thing the first time, their very first film, I hate this, we haven't sworn, blanking song. Yeah. You can be upset that they ruined your plan to move to Miami because you didn't have the team stink and not sell tickets. That failed back in the summer. Well, same thing with this. You're not moving the team anywhere. They're successful. They're drawing enough fans. They got them back in the playoffs. Don't own this team if you're so upset about them all. Not that GD song again! Her character doesn't make sense. It's not her fault. She's a pretty good actress in these two movies, but her character is badly written in both cases. And that's why... She failed months ago. (laughs) (laughs) You failed once. Yes, because she has no motivation anymore. Incidentally, I do love that one of our main characters in this movie is going to be an announcer. Let's just have him give like a five-minute exposition Mm -hmm. dump about the first movie so everyone's caught up. But you know what? If you're going to have an announcer... You may as well have him recap the previous season. Because he's doing it as part of his show, his radio show. That does make some sense. So it kind of works. So when he introduces the whole Dorn just bought the team thing, first I'm thinking, where the hell did Dorn in the 90s come up with $140 or whatever it was he ended up They show him being pretty rich in the first movie, but not that rich. Not that rich, right? And of course, later on, he's broke, but still, 140 So at that point, you're right. She's out. She's made a boatload of money and actually looked up what other teams were selling for in this era. A lot of the teams that get sold tend to be not great teams, first and foremost, right? Mm -hmm. So you got the Rockies and their youth. 
the Pirates being sold, stuff like that, in the 80 to $95 million range. Then you got the Orioles, apparently got sold in 96 for like $136 million. Pete Angelo spot them, I think it was. I think so, yeah. But anyway, $140 million for a mostly bad team, except for one year, in Cleveland is a massive overpay. If you're the Rachel character, you're laughing all the way to Miami. Why are you buying this team back only to be miserable when they're winning? Her character has no motivation. We don't know what she wants. She's just back to be an annoyance again. She's being petty, I guess. But I guess. They don't make her the... Well, maybe they do in the first movie that she's that mean-spirited. Well, David Ward wrote this, and I guess that's one of his biggest flaws is her character because I can't blame her. He, by the way, also wrote and directed The Program, The Program, the program? which Omar Epps was in as well. Omar Epps was in Love and Basketball, which we covered. Dennis Haysbert plays, I think it's his father, right? He's in that too. I think, I think so, it's his yeah. dad because Haysbert was in a lot of sports movies. He was in the two major leagues, maybe three actually major leagues, Love and Basketball and also in Mr. Baseball. Speaking of Epps, and you already mentioned Ventura, what did you think about the whole the movie parody? Yeah, the movie parody because I kind of loved it. <laughs> White Lightning, Black Thunder, Black Thunder, White Lightning? Is that some, what it was? Some, some Black Thunder was first, because he's the star, Omar Epsis. So it yeah. must be, yeah, Black Thunder, White Lightning. <laughs> Terrible trailer, but I think, in much the same way you're talking about, maybe this movie's poking fun at fandom, I think the movie's also poking fun at non-actors trying to cash in on their fame through bad movies or something. The long, close-in shot of the terrible dummy crumpling into a heap on the ground, and the camera just stays on it. There's so many shots in that trailer that are intentionally I appreciate that. that was I appreciate that. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. clever. So it's kind of cute. So it's baseball players acting, but it's in some pretty bad movies. Jesse Ventura jumping from a helicopter and landing on his feet without issue whatsoever. Yeah. I guess it was probably too soon for there to be a true Kenny Lofton comparison because Lofton was just coming up, I think, yeah. in this era, right? He wasn't quite the star yet. The comparison between Willie Mays Hayes as the team wants him to play and Kenny Lofton is so incredibly close True. they're both speedsters ball on the ground a lot not a ton of power great outfielders kind of stuff but gain a little strength i can hit the ball over the fence yeah and lofton could but he didn't really get out of his game though too much in his real life career lofton borderline hall of famer i think he deserved to be in the hall of fame frankly right. just for the impact player he was of course you have rick vaughn being the wild thing again at the end by putting on his vest and his glasses right but mm-hmm. those are images we know from the first movie it needs to come back. Similarly, you get Joe Boo coming back, and Serrano's got a little bit of his mojo. Well, Joe Boo and Buddha. Don't make me come in and break you guys up or whatever, mm-hmm. which I thought was a cute moment. But the Willie Mays Hayes thing, he gets rid of all the bling and the mm-hmm. Hollywood stuff. He's right? just playing the game. Knowing that the writer, at least, what was his name, Ward? David Ward. Of yeah. the first David movie, S. at least. Ward, yeah. Knowing that his whole thing was, I love baseball, I love Cleveland, I want to write a baseball movie. Wonder if that's a commentary in his eyes of baseball's becoming too commercial. All these guys are starting to get paid too much money. It's more about the bling and less about the game. And of course, you can point to the Rube speech and other things like that as evidence of that. But just mm-hmm. the fact that Willie Mays Hayes can't steal a base to save his life until he gives up the material things. And he steals three in a row, including yeah. home. On the nose. But I get it. Okay. I'll buy that for a dollar. The writer, by the way, credited writer is R.J. Stewart. And then Ward got character credit. And there's a couple of guys that got story credit as well. So the depiction of the sport, we've already said, is quite good. These guys look very believable. Parkman looks like he's huge and monstrous. And David Keith should have done more sports movies, I think. We talked about the score factor. Allison Duty. Michelle yeah. Burke is cute as hell. If you're into guys, Sheen was a dreamboat still. And Looking I know he's, ter- he's broken now, but he was hot and handsome then. And then Omar Epps is a handsome fellow, too. Oh, definitely. And Rene Russo briefly as well. What score would you give it? Because it isn't a good movie, but I did have fun. But you do your score first this time. Yeah, this is actually one of the harder ones. I'm combating childhood nostalgia. First Instinct. First Instinct's like a 5 out of 10. I'm going to say 
Five and a half to six. That makes sense to me. I don't know why it got five percent, meaning almost nobody liked it. It's also not a movie that overstays its welcome. It's like an hour and 40 or right about 45, there. yeah. There's going to be moments in the movie for sure where as an adult viewer, you're like, ugh, this doesn't quite work. Because it's the same movie all over again. And just taking one step further. And I kind of wish they'd gone even further than that. Maybe do away with the White Sox thing, have Parkman go to the Cubs or something instead. So you still got the Chicago element of it. Who knows? You get enough moments that are plain fun. The baseball action's good, and I don't know what more you can really ask for from a baseball comedy than to have a little bit of fun and for the baseball action to actually be portrayed pretty well. Yes. You're probably right. It's probably more like a five and a half to six as I'm talking about it. What is this 5% stuff? I'm so stuck on that. It's unbelievable. You make it seem like that's what the overall score was. That just means only 5% of people actually liked it. They could have said two and a half out of four stars or my thumb is almost up and not quite there. That means all negative reviews. doesn't mean that everybody just torched it. It means that they didn't actually give it a positive review. I get that. There's still a lot of people that didn't like it. still a lot of people that didn't like it. You cannot say the baseball action in this is bad. If you say that, you're wrong. That's not an opinion. You're just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Because both major league movies, I haven't seen the third one. They do it well, and it starts with the star of the movie being a very believable baseball player. Charlie Sheen is terrible a hundred times over. We know that, but yes, that happened recently. Oh, my God, I can't see Charlie. Forget it. He was a good actor back then, and he was yes. a very good athlete. You have a group of actors that have good comedic timing, mm-hmm. and I don't care if that's Charlie Sheen. I don't care if that's Tom Berenger. We haven't even really talked about the manager character that much, who's a guy I love. I love that voice so much. Mm-hmm. I can never remember his name. James Gammon. Yeah, Gammon. That's right. He kills it. Well, he's not in the movie that long, though, because of the heart attack. Exactly. But he still kills it whenever he's in it. They all have great comedic timing. So even if the material's not great or not that funny, as in the case of Rube, I always feel like they've done a good job of delivering it. I think the weakest performance of them all might be Tanaka, leaving aside the gross stereotype of Mm -hmm. the samurai-turned-kamikaze Tanaka or whatever. Goes on the wall a couple of different times. First time drops the ball. Second time keeps the ball in his glove. If you can look past the fact that it was made 30 years ago and just sort of accept it for what it is, then even that's not awful all the time. Mm -hmm. So. I think it's a fun movie to watch, and I think anybody that likes or loves the first Major League will at least have a good time watching the second, and that's more or less what you can ask for out of a sequel. Maybe we're being too nice. I think it's at least passable. What we talk about with critics' reviews and stuff about this movie, I assume we're all roughly contemporary to the movie's release, right? I wonder if this is one of those movies that has actually aged pretty well in that people maybe looking back on this movie now say, you know what, it's not great. But it's not as bad as critics made it out to be back then. You know, there's a lot of fun stuff in this. Before we wrap this podcast up, I just want to spend a few minutes talking about the Robert De Niro 1973 baseball drama, Bang the Drum Slowly. We were going to cover that in this spot, but then saw Major League Two was free on YouTube and just had to pivot to that. We wanted to have some fun rather than deal with disease and a man's slow death this week. Still, though, I went to the trouble of getting the DVD from the library, so here's my brief review, just me by myself here. Bang the Drum Slowly was written by Mark Harris, who adapted his own novel, and it was directed by John D. Hancock. No, not the one who signed the Declaration of Independence. He wasn't that old. No, not the one who directed The Blind Side. That's John Lee Hancock, and he's really good, by the way. He's directed and written some really good films. This Hancock went on to mostly direct TV shows. You'd think the world would be his oyster several times over, considering how well Bang the Drum Slowly was received, but apparently not. Speaking of the response, this was loved by critics. It's Major League Two's polar opposite. 92% of Rotten Tomatoes critics like it. Roger Ebert was one of the people who raved about it at the time, calling it the ultimate baseball movie. He even gave the flick four stars. The guy who plays the manager of the team, Vincent Gardenia, was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Gardenia went on to be nominated in the same category for Moonstruck 14 years later. 
Bang the Drum slowly was up for two AFI lists, but didn't make either of them. The Top 100 Cheers, and it was among the candidates for the sports category of the Top 100 Genres. It's interesting to think of this as before De Niro was world famous, because it was. The film came out in August of 73, then Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets was released two months later, and that was the one that put Bobby D on the map. So he's been in our lives as a movie star for 50 years this year. We previously covered De Niro on this podcast in The Fan, where he played a psychotic former baseball pitcher, not a catcher, who stalks Wesley Snipes. Of course, De Niro also played the real-life boxer Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull, perhaps the most lauded sports movie of all time. Not by Chris, though. <laughs> not a fan of that one. Bev and I covered that eight years ago in my other podcast, Have You Ever Seen? De Niro played another hands thrower in Grudge Match. I always love that phrase. You throw hands with Creed. Where he fought that other guy, famous for an iconic boxing movie, and I just referenced him, Sylvester Stallone. In this, Bob is a southern simpleton baseball catcher. It's a little weird hearing him do a southern accent, by the way. He's played, I don't know, 40,000 characters in his very long career. But I don't think he's done a lot of accent work, especially from the south. So I guess it's passable. It just seemed odd. But Bang the Drum Slowly is not even his movie. Michael Moriarty is actually the main character. This is the guy who played Ben Stone on Law & Order for about five seasons, although I never watched that show, so I think of him as Denzel's boss in Courage Under Fire, that war film from the mid-90s. In the very first scene of Bang the Drum Slowly, we find out De Niro has a terminal case of Hodgkin's disease, which Moriarty tells us in the narration. The two of them keep it a secret from everybody, although players on their team slowly start to find out as the season progresses. Moriarty and De Niro, the best friends that they are, just want to have as normal a season as they can without Hodgkins hanging a black cloud over everything, so that's why they hadn't told anyone. Plus, their team would surely cut such a sick man release him if they found out about it, and we learn throughout the film just how loyal Moriarty is to his catcher. The opening credits tell us that they filmed in Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium, not the end credits, the opening credits, but their team isn't actually the Yankees or the Mets. They're the Mammoths with uniforms that look exactly like the Yankees. I wonder for about 20 minutes if baseball was barely going to be a factor in the film, because I've seen it, but it's been a very long time. But the season starts around the point I had that thought, and then we start seeing quite a bit of sports action. While De Niro looks moderately adequate playing catcher, he does not have a good swing. We thought Wesley Snipes looked terrible as a hitter in The Fan. Well, he was, and his swing is probably even worse than De Niro's. But the famed method actor can only do so much research and prep if his body just doesn't have the skills to make him look like a professional baseball player. Moriarty's not a terrible-looking pitcher, at least. He's no Charlie Sheen, but he's better at throwing a ball than a lot of guys have been. Think of John Goodman in The Babe. I think he threw one pitch in that movie, and wow, did he look bad doing it. And just when I started wondering why De Niro wasn't ever showing evidence of having a fatal disease, he has a bad night in the hotel. He'll have a few more of these before the movie's over. Seems to be a little convenient when they happen, too. Now he's really sick, but otherwise he's basically fine. And also, just when you wondered how this nobody-knows-about-the-Hodgkins thing was going to continue, everybody starts to find out. Moriarty tells one teammate, then it spreads like a California wildfire. The players bond. We get a montage of them playing great in early September and winning a lot of games. But after they win a big game and De Niro is the hero, he's sick again. Even the umpire notices that he's not doing so well when he's laboring while catching balls behind the plate. Even after they win a big one against Pittsburgh 4-2, De Niro seems spaced out. Everybody else is celebrating in slow motion, very slow motion, but he doesn't seem to know where he is. I wonder, by the way, if that slow motion thing at the end of this was homage in The Natural, because at the very end of that movie, of course, talk about super slow motion when Roy Hobbs hits the winning home run. And De Niro ends up in the hospital as a result. There was only five minutes left in the movie at this point, so I knew he was never going to play ball again. Although we don't actually witness his death, De Niro flies home before the season is even over and dies there. 
Apparently the Mammoths, according to the voiceover by Moriarty, breezed through the playoffs, and I guess they won the championship. But the bigger concern, especially to the team star pitcher and heterosexual life partner, is De Niro's offseason death. Nobody from the team except Moriarty even showed up for the funeral. And that's it. It's almost like the heterosexual male love story three years after the actual love story with Ryan O'Neill and Ali Sheedy. Love means never having to say you're out. So this is a pretty good movie. I've seen it before and respect it, but a couple viewings is enough. This certainly isn't the ultimate baseball movie, and wasn't even that in 1973. Most of the great baseball films like Bull Durham and Field of Dreams have come out since, but Pride of the Yankees was 30 years earlier, and I certainly would rather watch that again. Although he also has a terminal disease, doesn't he? But still, I saw that again recently and really liked it all over again. Because if the sports action is just okay, and the movie isn't all that much fun, then I can't get all jazzed about a film. But if you're curious about seeing it again, or for the first time, although if you are seeing it for the first time, I blew a lot of things for you just now, see if you can find it at your local library, like I did. And that's my review of Bang the Drum Slowly. In two weeks, it will be nearly the middle of April. That sounds like a good time to go for a run. So let's tackle the 1981 winner of the Best Picture Oscar, What a Change of Pace, Chariots of Fire. I wonder if he will fail miserably until he gets a terrible haircut and some really horn-rimmed glasses and then gains 16 miles an hour on his foot speed. Crank it, Jerry. He's cranking it, Jerry. He's cranking it very slowly. He's cranking it, Jerry. Okay, we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can email us, scoringatthemovies at gmail.com. And this podcast, 127, I think I said, episodes is available in all the podcast places. It is 126. I'm glad I looked at my notes. 126 we've done. Meantime, don't take her easy, Ricky. You did that for an entire season and you sucked. So keep up the intensity, you wild thing. Keep on cranking it, Jerry. I was going to be really upset if you didn't do like a James Gammon voice at least once in this podcast. I mixed up a little bit of Sam Elliott and James Gammon. There you go. Forget about the curveball, Ricky. Give him the <laughs> heater. <laughs>